This is the 19th season of Bass Talk Live. BTL is presented by Bass Cat Boats, Striking Lures, Aftco, Pro Guide Batteries, X Zone Lures, Shoreline Boat and RV Repair, Spro, Gamakatsu, Big Bite Baits, The Bass Tank, Denali Rods, Beatdown Outdoors, and Sunline. BTL, coming at you. Good morning, and welcome to another exciting edition of BTL Bass Talk Live, where we are going to talk about bass fishing. Exciting show today. We have him on two, three times a year. Uh, Rick Pierce from Bass Cap Boats uh, will join. And I think he has some interesting perspectives, uh, not only on bass boats and the current bass boat market, but also uh, professional fishing as a whole. I'm looking at him behind stage right there. And the man has not only uh, built bass boats for the better part of uh, half a century, but he, he's also caught a few fish out of a bass boat and has been through some changes and lived through and seen and sponsored and talked to guys who have uh, gone back and forth and changed and format changes. Well, that's what we're dealing with now. Uh, before we get to Rick, a couple uh, things went down over the weekend. Uh, kind of expected uh, this one. Uh, classic champ David Fritz retired. Uh, legendary career for David Fritz. Uh, obviously uh, known for, well, we'll ask Rick, we'll bring Rick in for this too. I was, I wasn't going to bring him in for this uh, already, but we'll bring Rick in for this. Rick, uh, even though David Fritz forever fished against some friends with him, all that, uh, not a surprise in my opinion that Fritz hung it up, but man, the guy has caught some fish chucking and winding, hasn't he? Yeah, David's quite an anger. I mean, I was fished against him. One of the best ones was Bugs Island. You watch him come down the middle of the creek fishing individual stumps he saw on his on his uh, at the time his uh, flashers you know and uh sitting on that seat coming down through there and an invitational event and catching fish but david i've known him for years knowing going back to being sponsored by hubert and rose green that's where i first met him at back before he became a pro angler and uh he really jumped out with his red man career and did well and we managed to eat breakfast at the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame here about two months ago. Mm -hmm. Had a good morning, he and I, and my wife and his girlfriend. We all sat night together, and so uh, spent some time with David. It's good to do. Now, did David make that lamp that was auctioned off at the Hall of Fame? It was like a one-of-a-kind lamp with like a shade, and I believe the base of the lamp was like an old cranking stick that he like fished with in the classic. Yeah. Did was that right? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did make that lamp. It was very special. He's going to make a few more of them, but uh, going to try to do something special with them. David's just a unique guy. Kind of got his own thing going on. Loves that Carolina barbecue. We kind of, I like the more Arkansas style barbecue. He likes that Carolina style. So, you know, and you can tell looking at him, he likes barbecue, you know. But <laughs> Now, one is mustard-based. Is one mustard-based and one is ketchup-based on the barbecue? Well, is that the difference? Well, there's more to it than that. It's the way they cook it, and just it, there's a whole lot to Carolina barbecue. I've had it out there. Uh, in the article uh, announcing Fritz's retirement, he said, I'd like to think my work has helped a lot of fishermen. He said, the younger generation probably knows me more for the Fritz side than they do anything else, and that's fine by me. That bait will litter. Oh, yeah, he's still, he's still plugging the Fritz side there. That's a smooth move. Uh, at the end, yeah. he said, the picture 
of the lock screen on my phone is me and Ray Scott when I won a BASS tournament at Bugs Island. Great transition there, Rick. Uh, Ray did so much for me and promoted all the fishermen in a way we had never been promoted. Dave Mercer is great, too. I can't say enough about bass. They made my career for sure. So it looks as though David Fritz has made his last cast on the Elite Series. I actually got to fish. It wasn't his choice. It was a media event, Rick, but it was on uh, Sam Rayburn, and I got paired with him for one of those, and we went out for two and a half hours and I was shooting content. And at the end, uh, the last hour I got to crank, uh, offshore structure on Sam Rayburn with, with David, David Fritz. Fritz. And it is, a, it is a top five moment, uh, in the 15 years that I've involved in this industry. Uh, that was when he was experimenting. I don't know if he still does it, but he had just started cranking with straight braid and was fig kind of, he had just started that year and was kind of telling me about all the benefits of it. And boy, he caught, probably five or six just little ones you know with the leg touching the inside of the rod that slow gear ratio real grinding that big plug on rayburn but definitely a memory uh a memory that i'll always take with me yeah that memory at uh, bugs island was actually uh, he was coming down the middle of the creek and i had caught fish on the same creek and we were fishing the same creek and i my fish weren't producing well i didn't know they were all out there on those stumps and david knew that he was just really good at where they transitioned and bugs is a little different like anyways you probably know you've been there i think yep. but it's a different lake and it's kind of sand dirt type lake and sloping transition with defined channels and so definitely it's a rock type structure but not really and uh, david did a real good job on those isolated stumps that was what he really honed in on at bugs all the time we're gonna get into the technology and i find this fascinating because you said he found those stumps uh idling with his flasher right that's all about any of us used back then. But you, he could find a stump with his flasher. I mean, a stump that's this big around, he would watch his flasher enough and be like, okay, there's a stump. Well, as much as anything, David felt them too. You could feel them if you fish them, you know. Mm -hmm. And I've got spots on Norfolk. I've got one bank, Matt, that's got one stump on it, you know. <laughs> and, and it's literally one stump. And right now it's probably in about 11 foot of water where the lake's at right now. And, you know, most people just go down that bank and I go to one stump. And David was really good at that. This is a great kind of juxtaposition from old school to new school. So, like you mentioned, I fished the uh, Bugs Island Open uh, last year. And I ended up catching it. I was proud of myself. I ended up changing my pattern, catching them on a three-quarter ounce spinnerbait on windblown banks. But in practice, uh, I, I figured out the stump deal. Well, I was able to go on Google Earth put a drop when the lake was down on all these stumps on these kind of gravel rock clayish points, then transfer that waypoint to my graph, then drive directly to the graph, to the waypoint, drop my trolling motor and know that on this point, there's six stumps, one, two, three, four, five, six, here they are, then target them with a drop shot or a, a plug on my forward facing sonar and just go point to point to point, never been there before, had a hundred stumps based on my Google Earth research and forward faces sonar, it's crazy how much time has changed from a guy who's feeling it with a plug crawling around the bottom and on a flasher to doing a bunch of research on a couple of computer screens and then driving right to the dang stump. Yeah, we're slow, Matt, to technology that's out there, and we're slow to adapt to it and slow to accept it. You know, I go back a long way, and we've done, you know, you go back to the bottom line technology and all the side scan stuff years ago uh, that stuff was there then and several of us have run uh sonar on the side of our um trolling motors i mean i've run 
pucks on the side, run two pucks on one on an AB switch. Um, and, uh, you know, back in the 90s, we had M810 Micronars, and we just, an M810 Micronar was revolutionary, and nobody accepted it, and we just didn't change. And so it's become, I think the dominance today is the quality of units we have and how much anybody can run them, and they don't take a lot of education to do so. I mean, yeah, you got to learn to set your units up. And you got to have clean pictures and all that. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's pretty simple, you know. I have no idea what a MA10 Macamar is. Micronar, yeah. That original side imaging, it gave you a 90-degree picture of the bottom. What 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 year was this? That was in 1991. And no, how many people used it? I think I was about the only one. Nobody really adopted to it. It was... um. It was um, an old Hondex type unit, you know. It was made by the same people who made Hondex. Okay, uh, I'm, you can I'm not picturing it. it. You said so. It's yeah. it was side imaging in '91, basically, or down imaging yeah, in '91. Side, side imaging. It was side imaging. It was basically it pictured it. It was almost like a radar in a submarine. You picture what it looks like when you look at a submarine okay. radar or, or a ship's radar. And it and it flashed back and forth left to right ninety degrees. It actually had a transducer that moved ninety degrees in a motorized. It was a kerosene filled transducer, and you mounted on your trolling motor, and transducer scanned like this. So just like we have the the uh, forward facing sonar transducer mounted on the on either a turret or the trolling motor head, and you're panning it, they're like, hey, we could create something that pans by itself, similar to what 360 is doing, I guess. Yeah, it's really very similar to 360. It's more kind of a cross between them all, because you could go down a creek channel where there was a defined creek channel. Uh, one of the best places I used it was Table Rock one time, and I could go down that creek channel, and there's a five-foot drop, and I had a picture of it, you know. Hmm. Uh, quick note, people are talking about flashers on the. If you guys want to learn like what a fish looks like coming into a flasher at bottom. You can go, uh, one of the best ways. And I learned a couple years ago on a Vexlar. You ever heard of a Vexlar, Rick, uh, ice fishing. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, okay. I can watch my bait, watch the crappie chronicles, YouTube stuff. And they have great screens of crappie coming into Vexlars and you, they'll get super jacked up. They'll be like, Oh my gosh, there's one fly into it. And it'll be this little bleep bloop. That's just going bloop, 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 bloop up close to it. And it's real easy to understand the flasher once then I also had Frick show me how to use the flasher. I still didn't understand <laughs> it, but I was like, Hey, can we go do some flasher graphing? And he's like, well, yeah. And he'd be like, see that high bottom high. I'm like, no, David, it just looks the exact same to me. And he's like, but there's a hard spot there. So, hey, I still got two 2330 C's on the ship. One's right up there. Uh, oh, yeah, I see it. Yeah, 2330 C on the shelf. And um, that to me is the finest unit for now. Vexar's a good unit, no doubt. But I think 2330 C had the best separation, best target. You had a 30, 60, and 300 foot scale. Um, you know where I live, Matt, and Bull Shoals in September, October used to be known for spoon fishing, and we spoon fish up to 80 foot deep, and uh, it's uh, it was quite a unit, you know. It's just, of course, shad become trees. You look at mm-hmm. shad or become trees on an LCR, but you can certainly pick out the target to fish. You know? uh, Dale, well, that's probably not his real name, Dale, but he pointed out that cats came standard with a flasher well into the 2000s. Do you remember the first model of Bass Cat that you went, you know what, we're not putting a flasher in this? Or the first model that had a flasher? 
Um, gosh, we we did flashers until '03. We still did flashers in '03, so I don't know. I mean, oh, it wow. would come. It would come later. I don't know exactly. It's, there's an archive on it, um, but with the console change of 2012, I think. So you guys had flashers built in like well past when the I, I would say the average angler was no longer using a flasher. Yeah, you know, you look at uh, the, um, there were a couple other units. There was an LCD unit made that was really good Zircon, uh, 30, 40 units. And the R- little RT-85 was a really slick unit. Um, and it was real-time sonar. Then you had the 1240As. And uh, they changed and dropped the 1240A, which is a dual scale, uh, a 40-foot scale. But with real-time sonar, you could have bottom up to about 60, 65 mile an hour if you kept your boat trimmed down. And so you saw the bottom right now. So if you're running a creek or something, there's no delay. And, of course, today we're dependent on processor speed, how fast the unit. And, uh, I mean, you look at the difference in, for example, on some brands, um, those smaller units are slower processors. So the, the unit's losing. Well, you know, you're covering at 60 mile an hour. You're covering some ground. You're covering in a second. You're covering about two-thirds of a football field or so a second. Yeah, you can, you can find some stuff on a big fishery that way if you know what you're looking yeah, at. Well, um, you know, you're able to move. You can not only find stuff, but if you're going to run a creek, and we didn't have mapping then, Matt. Yeah. That's what everybody forgets. You studied your map. You didn't have GPS. GPS didn't come about until later. I mean, I ran back in the 90s. I ran Loran units when we went north. I ran Loran units until really even with the GPS changes up until the mid-2000s when we got GPS. And like when you go to the Potomac, the military would shut off the GPS. So we really didn't have good GPS. It was all out of catamorphous. It wasn't working properly. What do you mean the military? What do you mean? You get up to the Potomac because we're close to D.C close to dc the military would shut down the gps signals like scramble the gps signal on your boat yeah oh yeah really scrambled the signal from the satellites so you you know basically (laughs) somebody couldn't target something today they don't do that but in the 2000s they did that and so you would think you were on something you'd be off 100 yards you know uh while we're while we're talking about electronics i do want to talk about uh, the graphs on the front of the boats, I feel like it's a natural segue. So I mentioned this about five minutes before we went live and we weren't able to actually kind of actualize that conversation. So we'll just have it live now. But uh, if you, if you've been following any of the social media and stuff, you know, Bass has started, has, I guess, created a council to, uh, to assess the impact of forward facing sonar. And I don't want to have, if you, I mean, if you want to have that conversation, we can, but I want to focus on the number of graphs on the front. We've seen, uh, uh, double stacks and triple stacks. I believe this year, uh, we're going to see our first quad box on the front of a bass boat with, uh, four 12 inch units. Uh, elite series rookie Kyle Patrick kind of trolled that he was going to put six units up front and he had four stacked like this and two on the side. I think that might've been, uh, just Hmm. a a little bit of a troll there, but we're talking three, four, five, and six transducers off power poles and turrets and all sorts of crazy stuff. My question to you is, uh, well, I know the answer because you said it was it was Ike. But do you remember the first guy who was like, "Hey, I want to put two graphs up on the front deck of this boat"? 
Yeah, well, the answer is Ike, and it was back in uh, the 2007 era. And it was his first year with us, or second year with us, and we ran uh, dual grass. And he went to one large graph, and uh, we would mount a little 5-inch or 7-inch on the download to the side on a ramp. And it would run totally separate system. It was on a totally separate harness, and it was really done just for backup. And from those, that big main graph and five inch, within two years, they were all running 12 inch, 10 inch screens, and they were all running whatever was available at the time, and then running multiple graphs. Mike's system was just redundancy. Everything was turned off. He flipped a power switch and he gave power to the units, and the okay. units worked separate. They were just redundancy. We had a lot of problems back years ago with units breaking units going down uh, plug connections are still an issue on some brands so plug connections to units that can come loose and so mike's theory was and this is also no not to lawrence this was during a real challenging era with lawrence equipment that they were having some issues and there was just a little short period that they had some issues but they gave hummingbird real segue into the market because when you're having problem with one brand the other brand gets more popular mm -hmm. but mike did that really just to back up because he'd had units go down and then basically he flipped one switch and he had units front and rear so it had nothing to do with hey i want to run 2d on this and mapping on this one that hadn't really it, guys were just split screening at the time yeah, they were split screening and it really segued it into the market and we use the word segway a lot, but it really kind of used it to go into the market. And what happened is the guy started following what Mike was do doing without realizing he really wasn't using them for that purpose. But then you started having, and of course, another thing people don't realize, that's about the time we got more accurate GPS signals. Mm -hmm. So we wound up getting better GPS in that era. I'll never forget when we did in 03, we built the first dash that would handle a big screen. Like um, at the time, they only had a black and white unit. So I think it was an LCX 15. And then they came out with the LCX 16C at Lawrence. And gosh, I got a call from one of the uh, sales managers at Lawrence one day. What are you doing with these GPSs? Well, we did that in 2003 model year with the Cougar FTD. And nobody could do an in-dash screen. And we wasn't real popular. Not a lot of people were doing GPS unless you were a pro. Now, the pros were all running GPS. And, of course, Kevin ran one mm -hmm. and learned how to run it. Um, he's, actually, he spent a lot of time with my dad. Dad and Kevin were real good friends when dad was alive. So Kevin and dad would go to lunch, go to supper, go do whatever. But they were good friends. But uh, uh, certainly, uh, Kevin was running it. A few other guys were running it. Dad was running it. I was running it. But um, there were several people running it, but outside of the pro side, nobody had done anything with it. And so when we did that in 2003, I got this call from the sales director at Lawrence. What are you doing all these GPS units? They actually didn't plan on building that many of them. And we were out selling them because just about every boat that went out of here had them. Huh. And that's just, you, know, you could get GPS. I and mean, if you'll recall, they were the larger pucks. They'd yep. just gone to the small puck. That puck was about that big. I mean, it was bigger than your than your large cell phone today in size and footprint. And that change probably helped us a little bit to get some space because it came out with the same size puck or receiver they have today. And then improved the quality of receivers tremendously. Mm -hmm. uh, let me pull this picture up here because this will be kind of an interesting uh, comparison. So that would have to be the 2000. 
11 classic, I believe, Rick, because that was the only time that they put the uh they put the radar on the back of the boat. So yeah, that's when we ran radar. They're running to Venice. Yeah. Yeah. But so just wagon wheel. Yeah. take that giant. That's a giant pug. That's a one off in the back. But I'm looking at the front here and I see the small. That's probably a seven inch unit or yeah, a five inch a unit and yeah. a 10 right there on the side. But I remember uh, when all this stuff happened, you had guys who were doing all sorts of funky stuff to fit these units up front when it became kind of standard and you can see it right there. So he's got one on the floor here and then he's got one on the side here. But so he's literally has to be looking 90 yeah. degrees to the side to even see his graph. Was there like a, a meeting or anything that you guys uh, that you guys had at Bass Cat when you were like, hey, we're. We're in an era now where guys are wanting to put 24 inches of screen up on the front, and we need to start figuring out how this can work with our bass boats. No, I was probably resistant to it, to be honest. It just was overkill. I mean, it was good for pro marketing. And, and pros, you know, most of your pros, they either got a VIP deal or they've got some type of a platform. Some get units that, and some are sponsored with endorsements but most of them are getting some kind of a program. So those guys will wind up spending money. You know, you take a Garmin 16 today and gosh, I don't even know what retail is on one, probably $6,500. Yeah. 16 inch if you're going to throw a black box and an LVS 34 in there and then actually install it. Yeah. You're over six. You're, you're between five and seven K in for sure. Yeah. You're definitely in the high dollar. Range. I think you're probably over seven retail, Matt, but um, with an LVS 34 live scope, but, Definitely, those are the same problems, and you're. I don't care if you run an Apex unit or a, or a, a Lawrence unit or any brand. You know whether you're running Humberts Apex or Lawrence or, I mean, you gosh, let's just go get a Ray Marine. But the point is, is we'll get TV sets on these boats, and we were resistant to that change because the only people we really saw doing that were the pros. This is all developed in a short period of time, trying to get to live scope. And so it's really come along. And I remember we had a the first Garmin units that we played with with Pan Optics were at the dinner meeting at um, Heber Springs at, at, at not Heber Springs. I apologize at uh, D Gray. We were at okay. State Park at D Gray, and I guess that'd be somewhere around the 2016 or 17, yeah. 15, 16 year. And uh, those are the first panoptic units, and they just weren't real clear. You know, they, yeah, you could see a fish, you could tell it was a fish, but it wasn't that good, you know. And LBS 32 brought that forward, Active Target kind of came in behind it. Um, now you've got Mega Live that still has some growth to do, and Hummingbird's working diligently on that. They've got the technology, they just got to get the units. And so you, then you've got LS, LBS 34, so you've got LiveScope 34, and it, Active Target 2 comes in just before LiveScope <laughs> 34. So is it over? No, it's not over. But one of the things you mentioned, you said, let's go there if we want to. And yep. I'm going to change that path a little. So there's no doubt. you got in, Mitch building NBT screens, and I've watched what Mitch is doing. And now you've got Fishing Obsessed building offset arms. You've got the new guys building a, a, a live scope mount that goes around the shaft of the trolling motor out of Kentucky and what Paul's doing there. And that's not out yet. That's yet to come. That's going to be introduced this quarter. That's a pretty cool unit. 
and you got everybody doing a turret, everybody doing something. So this is just changing so fast. I mean, I think you've seen it, but that uh, Jag 500 I'm running, it's in my garage. And so Jag STS with a 500R, and I've got um, an Apex unit on the dash. I've got a, uh, um, I've got another ACS 9 because I don't think you need, I think you need pixel count. You don't need, you need resolution. I don't think you need size. So I've got real high resolution screens. Okay. And and uh, I'm going to uh, high resolution front screens also. Okay. And run a Garmin and a run Hummingbird and a run Lawrence and a run all four units, you know. And so basically by running those, well, three brands. But anyway, I've got 360, uh, Mega Live, <laughs> HDI, and, um, and LiveScope 34 on the front of the boat. So at one point, the trolling motor, the the 360 the target lock and the brackets and the units all weighed roughly 175 pounds on the front of the boat <sighs> and so we've trimmed that down some and i mean if yeah. you've ever picked picked a guy up in a bass tournament set him on the floor of the boat you know how much he slowed it down and i've certainly picked up a few but uh you know it, you know how much he slowed your boat down well you're doing that every time you add all this weight to the bow now, Power Pulse came out with a lighter trolling motor, and we're all working on weight. But now these guys pull lithium batteries into the equation and take the weight out of the back of the boat, and the engines aren't able to go down in some cases far enough on some boats. I didn't say any brand, mm -hmm. but they've got to get the motor down because you pull that weight out. This, there's this theory. They're even doing weighted battery boxes now. So you're pulling the weight out, and now you're sticking the weight back in. When in reality, you got to change prop, you got to change setup, and you got to get the motor down in the water because when you pull all that weight out, it changes it. There's so much going on with electronics, so much going on with boats. You've got you've kind of taken me down a different path. Oh no, but, I'm, it's all good. We go down any path we want on this show, Rick. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I mean, you know, I've said this before, and I'll say it again on camera for twenty some, actually thirty years. Ever since this started back in the 2000 era, when we started changing graphs and screens and things like that, my theory has been a wraparound screen with about five options on it. The wraps in front of the boat. Now it won't be high res, and I mean it won't be high size, won't be large size, but giving mm -hmm. you options. And so you basically do. I mean, I don't know if you've ever drove a Tesla, but the Tesla screen's a pretty cool deal, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think we can do things like that with bass boats, but even more than that is doing a wraparound flex screen. Corning's got the ability. Other companies have got the ability. Of course, in bass boat, heat's a big deal. So there's some work we've got to do with screens, but I'm, I want to build server racks. I want to get the Lawrence's and the Hummingbirds and the Garmin's out of the screen business and get them in the, in the, in the hardware business and selling software. And you update your unit just like a server rack in your server and you pull the rack out. You add RAM to your computer if you want to, you know, and basically get them building hard drives and us, us control the screens because we can buy screens. There's several companies that build screens and Mitch is the only one that's coming out and marketing a box screen, but there's other companies that build screens and they do it in the saltwater business where they buy independent screens and mm -hmm. do different things with them. And, you know, we can get screens that are high quality to handle the heat. Um, and control the size and operation of our boats. And I think that's where I'd like to see it go. So you've taken me down that road a little no, bit. No, I like it. You're talking about, are you talking about that NBT screen that some of the yeah. guys are good? Yeah, I just, yeah. I had it, uh, I had it pulled up. Here, that yeah, one right Mitch, there. 
Mitch boy out of Canada is building that screen. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a, a 22 inch screen. One of the guys in the opens ran it. Uh, I saw him at Ufala this year and he idled past me and I was sitting there. I think I was talking to like Brandon McMillan or something. And I, I think I just stopped and went, dude, look at that. I, I mean, it's, it's like, it's like that big. Yeah. We've got, a, we've got a customer in Louisiana and he's kind of run a couple of boats. But his daughter actually won one of those uh, high school major events in Louisiana. Okay. And he actually worked with Mitch originally on that screen years ago and was one of the standing standing boards. So we were aware of it because he was running. It was on the down low, but we were somewhat aware of it. Um, I really wasn't paying a lot of attention to it because I felt like they could get into it differently. I mean, you can take that MBT screen, and most people don't know this. You can buy the, buy the box off Garmin. You can buy the box off Lawrence, run a 22 or 16 MBT, and you can network it and split screen it on the front, run Garmin, I mean, Garmin on one side, run Lawrence on the other side of the screen. Uh, all right. So here's my question then. You got all this stuff at the front. You talked about weight, but uh, this was the first year. So I've got the uh, uh, Beatdown Ultimate Shorty Double Stack. So I've got a 12, a 12. <laughs> it's, it's heavy. It's heavy, but it's, it's awesome when you have it, when it's working. And you got the 12 and the 10 up there. And I always, I'm worried about like wind resistance and speed, right? Because listen, I've been in a cat now for like six or seven years and I don't care what people say. I like passing people and I don't like getting passed. So I've had <laughs> the, from the beginning, from when I had the one nine based, you know, the very first one that, that Jeffrey's had with Basso that I ran and stuff. I mean, I've had them all the way from 77 and a half mile an hour boats down to 70 three mile an hour boats with uh with the uh uh links i don't know what the thumbs up is doing on your screen there um i, I have no idea it's coming it's in I'm interesting you're getting some thumbs up there rick <laughs> <It's talking>. <laughs> <laughs> i have no idea we'll take a break right here it's okay on so your system i'm not it, <laughs> there's no way it could be it could be on my system i've seen it anyway yeah. we'll roll so here's my question then is that a weight thing? How is that a wind resistance thing? Like, what am I losing on my my Cougar FTD right now? Based on those two graphs on the front, how should I be running those? Like, what? Like, that's gotta be taking a couple miles an hour off, right? Yeah, you know, it's it, you know, I talked about that uh, setup with that. Um, yeah, uh, with that Micronar, the Micronar transducer back in that day weighed five pounds, just just a bronze transducer. So I could take that bronze transducer off. And I ran it on a seventeen foot Caracal back in that day. I could take that bronze transducer off and literally gain five mile an hour if I wanted to with okay. that up. But I could gain two pretty solid. So you're looking at. Five pounds on the bow basically makes about a mile to two mile an hour difference in most of these setups. Now, that Caracal was a unique boat. Mm -hmm. um, well, I was spinning a 25 Cleaver, 6,600 RPM. Um, you know, it was quite quick, so that's different. But no doubt, um, it's hurting you in speed. It's hurting you. Wind resistance is an underestimated thing. Uh, we fight it. Even in console design, I want to work harder on wind resistance, and that's why Today's console is more cosmetic. Last year's console was definitely wind resistant. The windshields and all that. You know, you look at most windshields, they don't work. They're not mm -hmm. windshields. They're 
their plexiglass adornment. And so I'm, I'm more on function and, and that's kind of where we've always driven things is to function. So, you know, wind resistance, definitely an issue. Um, when you look at what's happening with the market right now, the weight factor, another thing people are doing with that weight, and I've talked to the guys beat down. They're good guys, man. They're mm-hmm. really good guys. The father and son own that business. Blake and over I, there. Yeah, Blake over Blake. there. Yeah, and, you know, Ivan Williams kind of got them into that party, and Ivan used to be a sales manager here. Um, but Ivan lives up there next door to them at Warsaw area, so it, it kind of – got them sucked in on that business and it's really grown and Ivan had worked with them on some of their mounts and he's Ivan's pretty creative guy but uh, basically Blake's taking that thing and ran with it dad's let him in it's a bigger segment of his market than he ever thought but one of the things I worry about especially guys with older boats none of our bows on an older boat I don't care which brand you pick I don't care which brand you pick are built to handle that weight None of the backside mm-hmm. reinforcement is made to handle the kind of weight we're putting on a 2005, I don't know, XZY boat, 21XZY, yep. you know, whatever brand it is. Uh, it And so what you've got to do is you need to sandwich that deck, and the back plate needs to be larger than the top plate. It's a big common mistake people are making is they're not reinforcing the backside so basically, over time, I think fatigues and harmonics and flex, it basically tears the boat up. Well, so, which so I had it done at the bass tank, and they put it, they put that back plate on there. Yeah, but I'm sure that I know the guys that um, you know, beat down are building a larger mm-hmm. plate now. Originally, they made it the same size as the top plate, but now they're making them larger than the top plate, so they cover more surface area. And it's just one of those things you get, even if you have to custom cut it to make it fit, yep. get lots of backing on it because the back plate's what prevents that thing from walking on you. And so then I always make deal. sure I run it as low. So, 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 I mean, if I'm going like right now, strung out, like I'm getting to the spot, I'm in the lead, I'm getting 74 out of like 73 depends on, depends on, uh, uh, the size of my co-angler. And if I've caught anything yet two important things, but, but I'm getting 74. So, I mean, I've got a 78 mile an hour boat. I've just got a bunch of stuff on the front of this thing and you could buy the wind resistance with the weight. One of those mouths weighs like 14 pounds, man. You know, you just keep adding 14 to 17 pounds on the bow. You got hardware, you got mount, you got backing plates. I'll tell you what we really need to do on some of those. And we haven't got there yet. And we talked to Blake about it is make a pivot in in it and, I'd like to make it all pivot down to the deck and have like stoppers uh, just, just so you pop can just, it back up. Just like you drop a trolling motor, you can just pop your, your entire grab back, back up. Exactly. And just make a pivot in the shaft. So when you grab this, it's laying on the deck. The problem is we're running out of room to do that on decks. So you can't make them wide enough with your rods and with your trolling motor and everything up there. And then you want to run a butt seat in most areas, especially if you're fishing offshore. I don't run a butt seat, but as my knees are bad and I get older, I'm going to have to run one more because those offshore weights, when they hit you, they'll, I'll just be out of the boat, you know? Mm. And so, so you got to be more careful. So definitely in the offshore market, the butt seat's a big deal. So you got to have a butt seat in there. So as I look at it, I think that getting the beat down mount, you mentioned weight, you mentioned all that. And those are all factors, weight, air, wind resistance, everything on performance. So you're wanting to chase a few mile an hour. It's what got us in this conversation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I never thought I'd be that guy, but I'm that guy now, Rick. Uh, so is I Canelli, okay? 
he never was that guy, but he likes it. So that's why Ike's running a Cougar FTD this year, Matt. I talked to him earlier in the season. He got ready. I said, so you going to run STS this year? No, no. I like a Cougar. And what it really comes down to, he likes it. He's figured out he uses five square foot. He doesn't need a dance floor. And you, all of us use five square foot to fish. Yeah. The rest of that, the rest of that's for our partners or our gear, you know. Um, so it's nice when you're handling mm-hmm. fish, but you know, I I watch these kids worry about things. I'll tell you a big one for me. This is a pet peeve. You're talking about fishing now. We'll change gears a little bit. And then I'll go into the sonar thing. But okay. one of the th- I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years watching anglers transition in the boat. And there are some really good ones. Um, and some of them are really clean. But, you know, we we, we want to be efficient in the boat. So that I watch them transition from the floor to the deck when they catch a fish. I watch them how they move around their trolling motor. And flip-flops. Now, barefoot guys are fine. But flip-flops are the biggest joke in the business. Would you play basketball in flip-flops? Would you play baseball in flip-flops? Would you play football in flip-flops? No, I would not, Rick. And we fish in flip-flops. I don't. And some <laughs> of the guys wear back sandals, and those are fine. They seem pretty good. But even they kind of stumble around a little because they're watching the rod, trying not to get a hook in a toe. And so they're very aware of where they're at. And, dude, a pair of tennis shoes, you know, having the gear to do the job is a big thing. So I'm watching and I, you know, people wouldn't think you look at that, but I look at transition from the deck to the floor, how people operate their equipment, how they space around and move around. One of the biggest notices I made in the last two years, especially the younger anglers coming in, because a lot of them are wearing flip-flops and they are clumsy. I'm a flip-flop guy and Rick, this is bringing back, this is bringing, (laughs) this is bringing back, uh, this is bringing back Harold Allen and the the days of Mark and Harold, Harold was the most anti flip flop guy, and this was in two thousand and eight, nine, ten. I mean, he would dog cuss anybody that wore flip flops in the boat and coming in. I mean, I'm a flip flop guy, but I've blown out flip flops. I've gotten jerk bait hooks in my big toe, uh, especially on the Great Lakes. There is zero stability. I always wondered why guys who fish Great Lakes either fished with uh, Gore-Tex shoes on or nothing at all. And it's because you don't get the stability on it. So even when I go up to Thousand Islands, I will not wear the flip-flops because of (laughs) the stability. But I have not heard a good flip-flop rant in probably a decade. So that made my morning. Well, good for you. Um, But that was just one of the things you look at. And I've been studying it a lot the last two to three years, really one to two years. But I kind of noticed it three years ago, and then I started paying attention on Bass Live, be, you know, doing it on the BPTs and watching mm-hmm. these guys as they transition. And, dude, it's just – some of them, they're just plain clumsy. I mean, I would not show up without a good pair of tennis shoes and uh, and play basketball, you know. And, that's a great that, point. And that's what they do. And these kids are fishing. They're putting $100,000 plus out to fish. And – and leaving two dollar sneakers, you know, and go go to Walmart, buy a set of eleven dollar sneakers, you know, if you don't have good Nikes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, get something. So that's what I, it's been a real notice I've made. And I think if they pay attention to themselves, they'll just figure out they're just really not efficient. But that's one of the notices. And I've, I've studied that because I'm studying how they move from the trolling motor. How does a person act? What do they do when they pick it up? You know, who's efficient? And, you know, some of the cleanest guys are the most um, scrambled guys. You know, we talk about Aaron. Aaron was really clean fisherman, mm-hmm. but he had to keep everything clean because he was scrambled. Gerald's a clean fisherman. John Cruz is a clean fisherman with a good, he's not scrambled, you know. But no, he's got no, everything together. Yeah, John's got it all together. Gerald, he definitely has to do it. And Gerald's a good friend. I'm not talking about you, G. Yep. But uh, him and Leanne, great people. But no doubt, um, you know, he had to kind of figure it out. And he did. Mm-hmm. And so um, definitely Gerald's uh, one of those that, is not scrambled, but he keeps his stuff, is scrambled, but his keeps his stuff in order, you know, and he's much more organized the boat than he is some other places. <laughs> I get tickled at him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we got to take a break here before we do a couple things I want to knock out though. Did you say you have a 500 R on your Yeah, Jaguar? I got one in my, in my building. I've got, um, well, we got to have one here to demo. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we actually sell the 400 R. It's a, excellent platform i think i've seen that yeah it is an excellent platform but the 500 r is in the barn and uh (laughs) and it's a cool deal um you know it's triple digits bass uh boating magazine did a deal we went to wawa sea and ran it in um early october at wawa sea and um, we made a run up there actually i may yeah it was early november or october i don't know some weeks back and uh, up in Indiana, and uh, John Tiger and I spent time in it up there. So boating's going to run a piece on it. I think we got it up around 98 that day with he and I, and it's it's got triple digits on the speedo. So I mean, if you save your maximum speed, speedometer time, and there's been a couple of us take it to that level, but it's a learning curve. It's a big boat, you know. That one probably weighs in the 4,500 pound range, and it's a lot of weight moving in that range, but that's not for everyone, Matt, and not everybody can afford it. But uh, for those that can't afford it, we highly, <clears throat> we highly try to push them to the 400 R. All right, uh, and then I did find. You know, we talked a little bit. We talked to all the advancements. I've wanted to do this for a long time. I did find it, so I want to run a. a uh, I want to run a piece from the 2007 iCast. It's actually Clark Wenlet talking about this pan optic stuff. I think it's interesting <laughs> compared to compared to what we are now. I mean, that's what we, this is kind of what I first saw. Can you see that? Oh yeah, that's look at I that. There the it is. There it is. Holy cow! What, look at those blobs. I remember the first time seeing that. Going. Uh, okay, what are we looking at? Look at that right oh, that there. Two thousand seven. You said that was two thousand seventeen. That was two thousand seventeen. Yeah, that's yep. the same. I was gonna say I don't remember it. Seven. Yeah, seventeen. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Look at no, that. that's that's what it looks like. There's no doubt. And if yes, you could see, but it, it I remember the picture well. Uh, we had it in the dock over there at DeGray, and we were dropping it in the dock. And you could see the crappie, you could see the carp. You could kind of tell because it's a big fish, you know. Yeah. That quite a sight. And we ran it a little bit. We sold a few of them, but man, has it come a long way. I remember the first time I ever saw it. I was at a. Uh table rock media event with dynamic and matt lee had it on his boat and it looked just like that and uh it was in the fall and he's like dude he's like uh 
come look at this. He goes, this is really freaking cool. And this was before he knew it. And he had an Alabama rig and he cast it out. And I'm like, what am I looking at? And he's like, you see that blob? He goes, see this blob going? He goes, that's my lure. And I was like, holy cow. He goes, that's the Alabama rig. You can actually see it. And there's a, you know, a little bit of a delay and it was just the, the red blobs. And he reeled it past this tree and all these blobs came out of the tree. And I'm like, still trying to comprehend because we've always just read, you know, right to left on the graphs, Rick. So, I mean, when you've done that from the time you've been in a boat, the first time you see a live like TV screen, you're not comprehending what's going on. And he's like, yeah, that was 15 spotted bass that just followed my Alabama rig back in. That was the first time I'd ever seen it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool deal. You know what it does? It makes me mad at myself. Because back when I fished years ago, we didn't accept that technology and we didn't really take it to the next level. We could have done so much, even with what we had, that we didn't really search outside the box in that. Like I said, I get mad at myself because mm-hmm. the opportunity, even for a standard flasher running two cones, you know, we tried it, we played with it, and it was gimmicky and we quit. Um, and, you know, it's just like if Mike and our M810. I never perfected it. The weight of the transducer threw me off. I didn't want the weight on the front of the boat. And we just didn't embrace technology like we are today. All right, we're going to take our first break of the show. When we come back more with Rick Pierce for Basscat. Uh, are you cool diving into the state of the industry, Rick? Because we got a bunch going on in the industry. I don't know if you've, uh, yeah, if you've, I if you've noticed that. lately path with you on that committee that bass did and yes yeah, state of the industry is good man whatever you want all right we'll do that it is uh btl on a monday it's thanksgiving week happy thanksgiving by the way we'll have shows monday tuesday wednesday and i, I think we might even run a thursday everybody show. remember to be thankful this year man let's all be thankful absolutely btl on a monday with rick pierce we'll be back right after this the new puma sts has been redesigned from the ground up With the angler, design, function, and performance in mind, nothing on this new offering was compromised, and the only thing carried over from the previous version is the name. Based on the soft touch series hull that started with the flagship Jaguar, this new model is nimble and performs incredibly well at all speeds with either a 250 or 300 horsepower engine. Featuring a new 96 inch wide body footprint, this hull measures out at 20 foot 7 inches in length. Industry-leading design coupled with tournament-winning performance. The Puma STS from Basscat. Feel the rush. guys if you're a construction worker soccer dad soccer mom you want to be outdoors oh you've seen the reaper this right here is the zip up full reaper but it's windproof folks windproof and it actually has the mass built in it's behind me i mean if you can look good feel good and stay warm you better check it out it's the zip up reaper that's right windproof elite series pro daryl gleason here my pro guide batteries keep me going on those long tournament days and long practice days. Always plenty of juice, never fail. The best part about pro guide batteries, it's the people behind the company. They have over 40 years experience in the battery business, keeping all of us fishermen out on the water longer, catching more fish. Check them out at ProGuideBatteries.com. What's up, Bass Talk Live fans? Brandon Polinick here. 
And ever since I won a couple Bassmaster Elite Series events on X-Zone Lures, I've been getting a bunch of questions of what makes them so special and different. And really, the truth is, it's in the details. The little details, things like no cheap fillers in their plastic, that gives you more lifelike action, more realistic and vibrant colors. But don't just take my word for it. Go to www.xzonelures.com and check them out for yourself. All right, welcome back, BTL, on a Monday with the man, Rick Pierce. Also want to remind everybody, if you have not already had a chance to check it out, head over to omniafishing.com. They're doing a, uh, a deal right now. Everybody loves hoodies. It's hoodie season right now. I've got, I literally have a closet, Rick. I have a hoodie issue. I have a closet full of hoodies because then you get a cool hoodie and you can't get rid of the old ones. They kind of nostalgia. Anyway, Omnia is doing a deal. Select Iowa Reels. Right now at Omnia, you get a, uh, a limited edition select Daiwa hoodie along with the purchase. There's also a, a really cool uh, Beast Coast giveaway there, the jigs uh, that I've come to like because Travis Manson designed those, those open water sniper jigs uh, for the smallmouth up at Thousand Islands. But all right, uh, before the break, I, I teased it that I wanted to get Rick to get into the state of the industry and kind of give him the floor on whichever direction you seem appropriate. So the floor is yours. Hmm. That's an interesting one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Where are we going to go here? Hey, I'm going to tell you where I'm going to go. Uh, okay. E- EQs. Yep. Uh, probably the strongest group that has ever come into professional fishing coming out of the EQs. These young men, and they're all young men, have fished uh, nine events, have qualified strong, have fought to the end, have uh, struggled through. They understand the challenges of where they're going in the elites, and they're going to wind up succeeding at the elite level. I think all nine, I don't care if you're talking about JT Tompkins, I don't talk talking about Robert, I don't care if you're talking about Mm -hmm. any of them any of them i'm sorry to see bobby lane just not make it barely i would like to have seen bobby make it um bobby's made the decision to go the other way of course randall thorpe everybody's making these decisions i saw randall the other day um this is um everything is very unique and i've got a different take on it but the eqs definitely have um brought the strongest group out. I think next year will be the second strongest group we've ever seen because the people who didn't qualify this year will now come to the top. And then I think you've got a three-year cycle that is going to improve the quality of angler on the open level tremendously. Uh, You mentioned that uh, Bassmaster just announced over the weekend the field of 2024 EQ anglers topping out at just over uh, 100 and 50 anglers uh with a lot of invitational anglers a handful of bpt anglers and a lot of uh former elite series anglers in the mix so it will be very interesting to see 
how it goes this year. And I think Bass has surpassed their wildest expectations. Obviously, last year they were hoping, and I think Hank would tell you, they were hoping to hit 100, and they had 176. And then this year you talk about how difficult the economy is, and it is not a, a lucrative venture to jump into the Opens except for a small percentage. So to maintain that at 150 going into the second year of all nine, I think is a uh, is a win for Bass. Yeah, I think they've done a good job with the platform to have these people have to qualify through this EQ setup. I think they're, they've, they've set up in the past, you know, when we first started the top 100s, I didn't fish them the first year. I came in a year or two afterwards and fished top 100s and uh, definitely made the choice to go back to, to building boats for a living because that took too much time and and then you got family and everything else, two young kids to raise, and you know, I just everything going on in the 90s. But um, when we did that, we threw those guys under the bus that came in that weren't used to traveling. Until you spent uh, 14 or 17 days on the water in a row in a, in a qualifying event away from home, um, you don't understand it. You know, you go fish two or three tournaments back to back. If, anyone hasn't done that they don't understand the grind of the road the grind of, of structure and the guys are a little more comfortable today because back then we all stayed in hotel rooms and some of them do vrbos now mm-hmm. so there's a little more comfort it's easier to rent a house than it was years ago i mean there were a few guys renting houses in the 90s but it was pretty uncommon most of the guys just stayed in hotel rooms so that's a little more comfortable, but basically until you felt the grind, your equipment breaks and you're not, you don't have the tools to fix it. You know, you can't carry everything. And so having dependable equipment that you understand is a big part of it. I don't care if it's rods, reels. I mean, gosh, in the nineties, I carried full gear sets, poles, all the guides for my rods, uh, quick light tie, tire so I could tie new guides on, you know, uh, everybody had a, a uh, stick a barrel type, put a tip guide on. Man, I mean, there's just so much you had. And until you spent time on the road, understanding that is really hard. So I think that Bass has given these guys an opportunity to feel it and understand it at a different level. So they're not going to have that two, three year growing cycle coming into the elites that everybody else had this year. That's going to be strong. A lot of former elite series anglers that are fishing all nine a couple of surprises uh and we'll get some of these guys on and there's a couple that haven't announced it that have never fished bass before they're coming over from the bpt but just uh based on the Bassmaster article you have cliff cliff pace obviously randall tharp uh daryl gleason chad grigsby brett height charlie hartley mike mcclellan ish monroe james niggemeyer uh garrett paquette russ lane gary klaus Getting back in all nine. Gary Klaus grinding through the opens, Rick. Uh, Yusuke <laughs> yeah, Miyazaki. on both shows, man. <laughs> uh, Casey Scanlon and Shane Lineberger are just some of the uh, former Elite Series pros. And then there's three uh, three Japanese uh, anglers. Uh, Koya, Kenta, and uh, Masayuki are all fishing them. Those guys Duh, they work their tails off those Japanese anglers. You know, I watched uh, watched uh, Kenta this year. I mean, the guy fishes the entire lead series season. Then he qualifies, he double qualifies back in through the EQs. Uh, goes through a lot of cigarettes on those days in the water. 
Amasa smokes more cigarettes than Kenta. <laughs> I mean, it is. I fished her out at once. It is just a steady stream of. Uh, it looks like he's smoking some brisket out there. Yeah, I remember back in the invitational days. Uh, one day, Clun drew Fenton and uh, Dave Fenton, and yeah. fun, that was rare, but. Somehow they wound up fishing together, and I don't remember what it was because back then we couldn't draw, so it had to be a mixed-up draw in a in a flight or something because you yep. you couldn't draw your home state. And somehow he and Rick wound up together. Well, Rick was probably living in Missouri, so anyway, he drew Clun, and uh, and that was probably after he moved to Missouri. But anyway, they drew each other, and they're in the boat together. And Rick looked back at him, and I'll never forget Dave telling me this because we were running together at the time. He looked back at him, he said. I hope you keep doing that. And Dave said, what? I hope you keep smoking cigarettes all day because every time you do, I get two more casts. I remember back when Bass did the butt cam. Uh, Do you remember that when they were trying to figure out how to do this live coverage? And they're like, well, we can put a GoPro and then the GoPro had Wi-Fi technology and they'd run it through their box and then you could like click on it. So it was just a live butt cam what it ended up being was you saw the back of guys and then every time they took a leak off the boat you text your buddy and be like yeah but there were a couple guys there that didn't want their wives or family to know that 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 they need a little nicotine to to relax a little bit so you'd roll up (laughs) take photos and they'd be hovered underneath the camera in the back corner of the boat either dipping or smoking so the camera wouldn't pick up on it for (laughs) for three or five minutes yeah I talked to Hank the other day, and of course, Hank's got that fully loaded deal, and I said, you know, he's been doing it for years, and I said, yep. does it work? He said, yeah, it works. He said, I'm, and had, I don't even desire nicotine anymore. Awesome. So, I mean, that, that is a good deal, and uh, actually, we just worked a deal at Russell Marine last week, so last Thursday, we were at Russell and got to visit with Hank. Actually, yeah, last Thursday, I guess it was. It may have been, yeah, last Thursday or Tuesday. It was last week, anyway. Days run together when you drive like that, you know. I, I was you. here Friday, so it was Wednesday night or Tuesday night. But uh, anyway, Hank was there, and John came over and spoke. Steve Kennedy came in and oh, nice. visited with the kids. We had all of them there. We had 120, roughly, kids, high school kids. But I asked Hank, I said, does it work? And he said, yeah, it does. He said, I'll quit. He says, don't even have a desire for it. So I think there's options today to get off of it and different tobaccos and things. But yeah, you're right. That was a big deal back then. It, it definitely. Uh, buddies with Josh Bertrand, longtime sponsor of his was Smoky Mountain. And he's hooked me up with a bunch of Smoky Mountain in the past. But one of the things you uh, you said you wanted to talk about uh, was this BASS technology committee. Right, Rick? Yeah. Uh, I'll share the article that it came out with just if you guys had, there's been so much going on, like this is a big deal, but then everyone starts moving and then it gets lost in the mix. So I'm glad you brought this up. Bass creates committee and institutes technology review for the 2024 elite series season in a roundabout way. Uh, what they're saying is, is, Hey, we're going to monitor how much of an impact forward facing sonar and technology has on this year, how it impacts the, uh, number of fish caught, how they're caught, the overall viewing experience, the numbers and what people think. But in the process, what they did was say, hey, free for all in 2023. Yeah, well, they they have a free for all, but we're we're going to see and no different than, you know, some people have said like restrictor plates at Talladega. Yep. We're going to we're going to see something. I think it has to end at the level it's at. Um, I don't think we're going to ever see live scope go away. 
again, I, like I said, I was mad at myself because we've had a lot of this technology to do this. And we didn't really, uh, the older generation didn't really do a good job of, of taking it to the level. We had the tools. We just didn't learn how to use them. And so I think there's, um, you know, we were stuck in our ways. So I think that this has definitely opened it up and there's going to be some things change. You know, it, it, in bass fishing, this is kind of funny, you know, if you, you know, they will drill an in unit and weld it to save weight. So they will drill a spindle and seal it up and face it to save weight. And, and we can't be losing a lot of unsprung or sprung weight there, you know, but you're, you're still losing weight. And so they'll do anything they can to save weight and try to cut the borders, even to safety. And I remember one guy that I, I uh, my brother-in-law follows NASCAR more than I did. And we ran together, race cars together years ago, but he's worked on several of the tire crews. And one of the guys he was talking about, they figured out that they could drill a thousandth of an inch hole in the sidewall of a tire. Now, I mean, this is a small hole and it would vent when it heated up. So they figured out what size hole they needed in that tire to keep the pressure while they're running the race. And they caught that particular situation and the car got exceptionally fast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously he can control pressure through the whole race. And they could do it different tires, different, different, then whichever one's hotter. They, they figured out exactly how to control the tire pressure during the race. And by drilling this thousandth of an inch hole, and yes, he was penalized. Yes, he had to take three, three races off, I think. And yes, he was probably the fall guy for the team. But the point is, in bass fishing, if you did that, they blackball you. And in NASCAR, you're not. So some of these people are trying to basically change the game in bass fishing. And it's definitely good to change the game, but I think we're going to see some regulations come in and then it's going to be see, seeing how it comes down. And just like NASCAR's regulated at those levels, we're going to see the same thing. I mean, there's power converters trying to get clean power. Um, you know, the crappie guys are big on it and they're trying to even, you can buy boosters that supposedly clean the power to the unit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's all just RF noise we're trying to control. So nobody's going to run on an oscilloscope. And if you run it on an oscilloscope, you'll find the RF noise and try to regulate it. Um, and eventually it's going to get crazy with these people. And as it does, we're definitely going to need to regulate some things, you know. And so factory units will be coming in because people are going to be doing their own thing. Um, Mitch is going to wind up having people with screen limitations, maybe, maybe going. And here's another factor people haven't thought about, Matt. We can't mount a lot of that. Legally... Yeah regulatory wise we can't and the first time one of these guys has an accident and the screen's in the air there's going to be a liability issue bass has to accept that they allow these guys to go on the water so it's going to get looked at from a safety standpoint if nothing else that's a great point that i don't think many people have thought about yeah i took a picture of a particular unit when i told you how much mine weighed years here about a year ago and i took multiple pictures of that unit and there was a boat in my in the horizon that i could not see at certain points and so we fixed that we took the weight off we dropped the units down mm -hmm. to get them to a safe level 
but NMMA has a viewing angle and you know that viewing angle is one of those things people are going to have to look at and that alone is going to regulate it from safety because there's there's no way we're bordering safety on some of this yeah that's something that hasn't been brought i haven't heard brought up in any of the uh in any of the discussions well, but back when bass went true. to a 250 rating and we were allowing ourselves to run 20-foot boats back in those days i wanted bass to look at um positive level flotation because there's brands out there that don't have it they don't have to have it over 20 foot so there's people out there that could run boats without foam well you put a guy out going like we would go to duck island and Back years ago, Tucker went to Duck Island. Joe Thomas went to Duck Island. I went to Duck Island. There weren't very many of us went to Duck Island because you had to run out there on a the cup. Mm -hmm. You didn't have GPS. And so there were three or four of us went out there. You get out to Duck Island. You come back. You go out in the fog in the morning sometimes. You come back in the wind. And uh, it's hard to go and come. Now, how would you like to be out in Duck Island and that set of eight footers coming back 15 miles to um, the ferry? And... Uh, absolutely not have a boat that would float if it got through a wave. Yeah, no, I was always told out on Ontario that if if you make a mistake, just stay with the boat cuz it'll always it'll always stay up and you'll just roll into the shore eventually somewhere and you'll be safe. But yeah, you never thought about what just he had one under you and now it's on the bottom. <laughs> yeah, anything over 20 foot 1 inch legally in coast guard specs doesn't have to have flotation. Not huh. a pound. Huh. So NMA requires it, and everything we built for decades, that's the reason years ago we didn't have air storage. So until we got to fiberglass boxes, we couldn't get good, because we like our foam to be encapsulated, so we okay. couldn't get to where we could get a lot of rear storage because we wanted big rear foam boxes because that's what it took the way the Coast Guard tested everything. And so we had these huge rear foam boxes that kept the back end and the motor all afloat because you had to have them higher. And so now today, there's a little more levity on that. The Coast Guard's changed it a little bit. Now, they did come in a few years ago and change the weights of engines. So our engines have to go to the new four-stroke weights. And that changed the way it is. So you have to have more foam, but uh, more flotation. You don't have to have foam. You can use air flotation. You can put anything in there, you know, plastic balls filled with air. But you do have to have flotation that's, that will handle being drilled to a degree. And, uh, and so in doing that, you know, these boats have got to stay up. But in the years that we went to a 250 rating, we could have got by without a lot of that. And if you got out there and got submerged one, speared one, and you've seen them submerged and you, your pumps aren't working right or something, your boat's not staying up in some particular cases. It's interesting. Hank Parker just talked about how many years it took him to get out to duck. Uh, and he finally was able to get out there with, uh, Cooper Gallant. He was on the show last week. Uh, Hank was, and it was a, a really, really good chat, but uh, okay. So I, I've made that. I love thousand islands. Like when I knew that the opens and bass was going to go there, I went and spent 14 straight days in Clayton and that whole area, just learning it. And I'm obsessed with it anyway. It's fun. Sometimes yeah, you gotta got, have fun, Rick, right? I've got a seven twelve picture of a smallmouth here. I caught out of Sturgeon Bay <laughs> and, and, uh, the only other one I've had two big ones like that come to the boat. And uh, one of them, my wife lost at Sturgeon Bay a couple of years later and she just wasn't handling it. And it was hard. It was, it was a big fish. And then I had one that smoked a spinner bait that I'll never forget out by Fox Ferry on the Island out there. And uh, by, by Fox Island, I mean, it smoked a spinner bait 
and I just froze. <laughs> <laughs> and it was in practice of a of an opener mm-hmm. invitational up there. And I mean, I'll never forget that. I was burning spinnerbait across those rocks, and that thing looked like a school bus coming at me. <laughs> but you've and got I love I love it up there, man. I love it up there. <laughs> But so you go out, you know, you got your ferry there on the right, and then you can see, you can kind of see the islands off of the distance on your left, and then you got duck that's out there that you can't see. So you that's would, right. li- you would literally get out to the mouth and pull out a compass. I ran one on the front bow. Okay, so it was it, you had a built-in compass on the front bow, so when you're running, you could tell what direction you were running in. So you yeah. knew that out of the mouth that. Uh, duck was what? Uh, oh, I'm horrible at directions. I Whatever. Northeast. Yeah, so if you're yeah. staying that, you keep that heading, and then eventually, boom, you'll see the speck. You see the speck, and you just run to the island. And uh, the first year we got out there with GPS, it was crazy. There were twenty some boats out there, and I, I looked, and Roland Martin's in the gap fishing them. He has got a 70-inch trolling motor, 72-inch. He's made a custom <laughs> Minkota or whatever, you know. And he had a 70-some inch hand control, and he's up on the front of the boat, tied himself, I think, to the butt seat, fishing in that shad school that was right there in the gut. I mean, um, Roland always pushed the envelope anyway, but i never forget looking over there. and Nobody else was going to hang in the water. Yeah. And he had this great big long hand control, and he was on the front of a boat just going up and down like a cork. Uh, we're an hour in. You want to talk a little bit about bass boats? Uh, like, we've talked like, a lot about bass. I know, but like, I mean, <laughs> what we got going now, it seems it, I was talking to you before. Uh, obviously, it seems like massive success uh, with the Puma. Oh, S- amazing. ST- yeah. STS. And now there's a new uh, STS in the lineup. Yeah, Caracal STS. And there's going to be a lot of people buy that one that need a Puma. Puma's an awesome ride. Puma SDS is an amazing ride, amazing equipment, you know, dual tray at the front, so you can run two two units on a bow without having to have a mount, so you don't have to have a mount, and uh, it, Puma SDS is an amazing deal. Um, SDS hole we made in the Jag, we didn't name it an SDS then because we couldn't tell everybody we had a little different hole. The Jag, we didn't slow it down, so it has all the performance left in it because if you build it slower, that boat with that 400, 500, and 450 at the time, we want to keep that performance rolling, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we definitely wanted the performance in the Jag hull. Different market. Boat's already huge anyway, 22 foot. And it's got a lot of bow. It's uh, The bow rise on it from the front seven inches deeper than a Puma STS. But the Puma STS is another version of the STS hull. And then this year, We've made a Caracal STS off that Caracal platform, and it's not a Puma. A lot of guys are going to buy it wanting a Puma, but it's an, it is a Caracal-style hull. Um, but it does have the STS features on the hull. It does ride better, than, for example, than a Caracal does. Uh, Caracal, which is now available in an SP package, it rides good. It's going to be really good to navigate bigger water because of the way it handles. It's going to be nimble. So it's going to be really good in bigger water. Um, so you won't, you'll be able to get down in them and navigate them. And so that's going to be good with that model. So it's a quick model, a little quicker, not a lot quicker, because it's big. 
but um, it's not that much different in length, but the hull's different. So that's kind of where we're at. But the Puma STS is the strongest launch we've had since Pantera 2 in oh, 1988. Wow. All right, I got to ask at least one Mark Jeffries question. Uh, you know, who knows where the economy's going, Rick? And this is a big investment. Uh, when it comes to the bass boat market, we're seeing a lot of the pros with their their boats for sale now, moving them going into the 2023 year in this game. You know what it's like. Talk a little bit about uh, what you see uh, going forward in the next uh, in the next couple years as far as the uh, the bass boat market in the in that industry. That's a good Jeffrey's question, isn't it? Yeah, that's a good good Jeffrey's question. Um, so as a company, we're pretty good. We've got some mm -hmm. backlog. Um, we're out into the early spring. And so we're good as a company right now. We're not running at the level we ran during COVID. We're off and we're running about 70% of where we were during COVID. Uh, we probably could run a little harder and that might be something we need to do. Um, as an industry, the industry's had some real challenges. Um, it's got some over inventory in certain brands. Certain brands thought they had demand during COVID and found out they didn't have demand, they had supply. And you couldn't get a boat during COVID. At one point, we were at a year and a half on production. We actually purged. We purged over 500 stock orders for dealers. Just purged them. Took them off the map because dealers could buy them if we built them, but we couldn't mm -hmm. build them. So what good are the orders, you know? So we reset all the order base. We're out pretty good right now. Guys your age, Matt, don't understand interest. And I think we talked about this a few months ago. Yep. Um, yeah, the interest today is a big deal to them. Interest is normal to me. This is where we were. You can take an interest rate graph and with Google today, you can find all kinds of them. And so you don't have to go know your banker or find an investment firm to get them. You can take an interest rate graph and go back hundred years. This is normal interest today. This is not high interest. This is normal. And so other than World War II and coming out of that, and a few areas that were basically induced economies, so they were induced by all the buying, all the, all the manufacturing, all the industrial sector, all the just surviving a war. Um, there's, you know, you go into the 30s or some of that. And there, other than those economies that were induced economies, we're in a normal pattern right now. My, my first home was a 10% home at that time in Arkansas. That's the most they could charge on interest. Um, I had a lot of 7% buys, cars at 14. Um, those are things that people did. And today this interest has changed. So there's going to be a change. It has to come back to where um, today's youth, and when I say youth, younger adults, they are going to have to adjust where interest is because they haven't seen that. So that's definitely impacted it. And then out west, you've got the cost of fuel, which right now oil's not killing us in the $80 range. Um, you know, gasoline here in Mountain Home right now is about 270 a gallon. Mm -hmm. So we're not getting killed by it, 289, you know. Uh, I just got back from Alabama, as I said, and gas was in the sub $2 to $3 range all the way across. So one of the things that's always happened in a recession, and I still believe this, is oil kind of leads into a recession. Oil doesn't act like it's in a recession. Uh, spending doesn't act like it's in a recession. Um, jobs don't act like they're in a recession. How can we feel like we're in a recession? And, you know, we definitely, we've got to rebalance the market from boats. 
but you still have a challenge getting cars. So cars are a problem. Trucks are a problem. So I think the market's just different. Maybe it's just normalizing right now. And as it normalizes, that's where I feel like we are. It's going to take some time. Now we're seeing, yes, we're seeing guys that can't finance boats. And we, I knew we'd have $100,000 boats. I mean, I go back, I've said this before. I remember when they were 2000 I remember when they were 3500 I remember when they were $5,000, 7500 8500 10 grand. And now a package is $100 grand. So, you know, I remember all those phases. When Bass Boats got to $25,000, I told my dad, said, oh, my gosh, we can't keep doing this. How can we do this? It's $25,000. People can't afford it. I said, well, Dad, I said that all the way through and went through every year just like that. I said, at this point in time, I said, people will buy. They'll continue to buy because they want it. If they want it, they'll buy it. And so that's where we're at today. Has the market changed? Yes. Today, and I'm going to be real honest, we are seeing growth in the market. Um, growth in the bass fishing market, growth in the boat market. It's kind of normalized back to where it was in those pre-COVID times. So I think it's normal again. The numbers in this market, and I've said it on this show before, were huge in the 80s. Huge. So bass fishing isn't more popular today. It has more medias on it. Another thing that the industry's realized from an engine standpoint or a grass standpoint or replacement item standpoint, you have to be involved in bass fishing to get media coverage. There aren't a lot of shows for a Mercury Marine that show you life on a pontoon boat. That's a fair point. So Mercury Marine is chasing brand image through us. Yeah. And we're lucky they are. <laughs> um, we're lucky as a sport, as an industry that they are, that Mercury Marine's talking about engines because, you know, if there were a pontoon show that was focused on pontoons and it's a bigger market than we got, then maybe they'd be focused on pontoons. Mm -hmm. Right now they don't have that show. So from a social media standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, they have to push fishing. That's a great point. So, you know, we're fortunate that that drives it. So we drive all this repower branding. We drive all this, um, um, which is, you know, it's the same for walleye. Walleye is a niche market. I mean, it's basically the majority of the market is South Dakota to Michigan. You know, it actually isn't even in Michigan, really. It kind of stops in Wisconsin, the biggest part of the market. The majority of the market, the biggest majority by far, just like Texas bass fishing, hey, man, Minnesota's huge for walleye. Oh, yeah. When I was up there, it's crazy. It's absolutely oh. crazy. Everyone's a walleye fisherman. Oh, yeah, walleye. And, they, you know, and I mean, and they it, basically they're depending on our market because there's not a lot of walleye programming other than a few things within fishermen and what uh, what the, um, Ron and um, the Winklemans and all them have yep. done, you know, and so there's a few of them, but. Really, there's not a lot. Anglers out. Gary Roach does a little, but really, you know, there's just not a lot out there other than some, uh, and they're all smaller networks and they don't have good social media followings. So they got numbers that are more regional, mm -hmm. but for a spread, it's bass fishing's where it's able to market and we're able to get the benefit of that. And so we've got to get that. Another thing we got to do is we got to train our anglers. So this is a different game, but I saw this on a, on a network and I've said this. I've said it recently and I've said it before. 
And it's just like when we went west with what we were trying to do out there, and we did succeed in that to a degree, and it failed, but it wasn't our failure. But uh, definitely it, it was a success in what we were doing in the market. And that is, as anglers, we have to promote our sport. We have to get it with these high school kids, college kids. College and high school is huge right now, and we're seeing that growth that we see that we talked about just now coming out of high school and college. And so we've got to see high school and college coming forward, and we've got to bring anglers into the sport. Uh, young professionals that are coming out and don't know what to do, looking for something or time. And, you know, the golf course isn't near as intriguing as it once was to some of them. And maybe it's hunting and fishing. Maybe it's just fishing. Maybe it's just hunting. But the outdoors are where it's at. Let's get them in the outdoors. And so as as uh, stewards of our sport, we need to promote fishing better. And every angler's biggest job is to promote fishing. All right, Rick, you got a number of plaques behind you. I would like you to take us out here, and I appreciate you spending over uh, an hour and a half on BTL. I always enjoy you coming on. And I honestly, we have no idea where we're going to go whenever we're on, so it's always a fun conversation. Uh, but yeah. I want you to pick a plaque behind you and tell me tell me what are your best fish stories from any of those. Because you, you can't look at a plaque without having a memory that comes to mind when you see one that makes you smile. You know, uh, the one I should have won was Okeechobee. I had one pound the first day and had a kind of a funky draw. And that stands to mind because I finished 19 with one pound the first day at Okeechobee. So that one's a memory. But that's put that one aside. And that was a cool story because I finished with Charlie and Jimmy Houston and all of them watching me catch fish and not knowing how I did it. I drove Steve Daniels the last day. And I reached and grabbed Steve's bait midair. Steve will tell you this midair and broke it off and tied the bait on and showed him how to fish it. And two casts later, he caught a fish. Steve Daniels guides on Okeechobee at the time. It was home to him mm-hmm. in Clewiston. He had gone two days without a fish. So that was a cool story. But the best story is the one where I had worked with a guy named Kevin Worth, and that's a sixth place at. Santee um, and uh, that one's a cool one there's a memory there there's a couple other memories you know I can talk about some of the plaques but the sixth place was one of the cherished ones because I had gotten with Kevin and we had kind of agreed he would fish the ditch and I would fish what I was fishing and I was fishing a stick bait in a current and in a canal and it was blowing pretty hard to there and it was blowing so hard and I was fishing it so fast I drew Mike Otten. I drew a guy named uh, Tim McDonald out of Indiana, that event. And I turned around and I was fishing it so fast. Every one of them couldn't believe it. Gerald Crawford pulled up to me shooting photos. And when he pulled up, he literally stopped and put the camera down. And did- Uh-oh, we lost Rick. I wonder if his, uh, I wonder if his phone died. We needed to take a break anyway. Oh, Rick's back. Uh, no. There we go. No, my phone cut in. Hang on. Okay. No, you're but, back. You're good. Yeah. I don't know why I had my cell service turned you're off. You're talking to he, Gerald Crawford. Crawford had just put down his camera. And he looked <laughs> at me. He said, my gosh, fish, Rick. And I was fishing that bait that fast all day long. He said, you fish that fast all day long? All day long, Gerald. How do they catch it? About that time, one caught it. <laughs> and uh, reaction. Was, it was a reaction bite and I was fishing it faster than I've ever fished a bait. But Kevin had the best pattern. 
I had a spot I'd caught a couple of big fish and last day I, my best fish came on this one spot each day and a friend of mine had come through the canal he's no longer with us but he was a good guy good friend of mine he saw me and he thought he'd get far enough away from me he ran a few hundred yards past us and I mean he literally stopped on this spot I couldn't give it to him he literally stopped on my big fish spot and caught like a seven twelve or seven and a half or something at Santee. And it was a tough bite anyway. And I just, when I saw him, I melted because I was going over there next to fish it. And he knew what I did and he did the same thing. And he just happened to catch one that weighed seven and a half. And that was big fish of the day. And that would have put me up into range of everyone and given me a little boost. But, um, it was a tough event for me, but a good event, very successful event. I fished hard, fished clean every day, fell out of the top five the last day and finished sixth. And Kevin Worth went on to win that event on my backup spot. So that was my best story. <laughs> uh, I believe he is now, uh, obviously everyone knows Kevin Worth is a jockey, uh, but I believe he's a horse dentist in yeah, he's a horse, horse dentist, dentist in Kentucky now. I feel like that's that's got to be more lucrative than a bass pro. Horse <laughs> dentist. That wouldn't you well, say? Kevin came in and out of the sport, and we've stayed friends. But we built a little bit of a relationship on that one because I stayed off him, and he stayed off me. Mm -hmm. Both of us appreciated it. We kind of mentioned it in passing. And, um, you know, I didn't think he had the best fish. I thought mine were the best fish, and they probably were the better fish, Matt. I had too much company. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was fishing where everybody saw me. My fish were better, but I had a lot of help. Anything else you want to get in here, Rick? Like I said, I, I actually had a list uh, of things I wanted to get into that we haven't gotten into. I'm I'm happy with where we went today. I think that's a, that was a well-rounded show. Anything else you want to get in here before I let you go? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things going on with BPT and bass right now. We kind of jumped around on that, mm -hmm. um, and we jumped around. We danced around the topic, but, you know, there's a lot of guys in this sport, so I've got somebody working on something, and I think that probably um, – Bass on Tour is probably going to come out with a little bit of a graph on it. And I think we're going to see a dynamic difference in the way you view what's happening in the sport. I see what's happening in the sport as an eventuality. So not everybody can fish forever. I mean, Joe Montana no longer throws a football. Um, and Roger Staubach quit a long time ago, and they cannot compete forever. And if you're not successful, you need to move on. I wasn't successful and I got to the point where fishing was secondary to work and I moved on. And so um, I'm going to dip my toe in for fun this year, but it's more for its promotion and fun. But these guys that are coming into this that are worried and frustrated about their careers changing, they're here to catch fish. And if you're not catching fish, then you're probably going to get cold. And eventually, if you're not throwing a football, you're not throwing a baseball you're going to get cold. I mean, you know, we had a lot of things we were going to talk about today. We talked about a couple of them, just kind of brief topics, but no doubt what's happening. BPT is changing. I'm a little concerned with the, um, and, and we got to realize BPT is only since 2019. So it's a five year program. It's not old, but to give them their lifetime points, I feel like that's a little unfair to the youngsters coming in because the lifetime points that detracts from the younger crowd they got to make it um i think bass has got a similar platform for filling some of those holes on that side above 70 and that's a good platform 
to fill above, but the 70 are locked in by their successful points. So I think bass is a little cleaner on that, but I think definitely it's just a purging of the market. And that's what's going to happen. If you don't win at NASCAR, you're not going to be there. There are so few opportunities for these guys. I mean, you look at the number of golfers that have changed. I mean, Tiger Woods doesn't win anymore. And so you look at all this and it just changes. And it's, it may be time for change. Um, I think Bass did a, a, an amazing job when um, BPT created. It was really weak, the field, for a couple of years. But they promoted those guys. They stayed. That, we, that field's not weak anymore. And these guys coming out, uh, Bobby Lane, um, and I'm not saying anything bad about Bobby. Bobby's great anger. But coming back into it on bass, there's going to be some guys coming out. You know, you look at Jordan Lee, and Jordan's supposedly coming over that side. Jordan's going to have a learning curve. And he doesn't think so, I'm sure. No, he says he does. He said he did on the show. (laughs) I had him on, and he was like, man, I'm kind of nervous going back. I don't know. I haven't fished against these guys. And I was like, I mean, I guess. It's hard for me to imagine Jordan Lee not not just getting on the water and just Ho hubbing his way to 18 to 20 every day, but he thinks it'll, he, he said himself on the show last week, last uh, Tuesday night that he thinks he's, he's going to have an adjustment period, a learning curve over at the elite series. Oh, I think he is. And I, I mean, I, yeah, I did know that, Matt. I knew he said that, but um, I, I think, I mean, I wish Matt was still fishing. I like Matt Lee, you know, mm-hmm. but Matt's one that got kind of in that position where he had to change his life a little He's selling real estate in Guntersville area now, so that's good. But um, Jordan coming out, I think that these kids are that good, and their youth are that good. I mean, you know, look at Jacob. Jacob's obviously that good. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's over there winning. This side over here is different. Uh, is there ever emerging? You know, MLF, and we've been involved with MLF, as you know, since the start in 2011 or whenever it was, yep. 2011. And, you know, it started really, MLS started to give the Outdoor Channel. Roger Warner was CEO of the Outdoor Channel. And MLF was started to give the Outdoor Channel their own platform television show for fishing. So they wouldn't lose it. And that's what people don't realize. It was really only about the media when it started. Well, then we go through, fast forward through all this, and we look at what happened in 17 and Irwin's, not with us anymore and 18 and we look at Irwin's not with us anymore flw is on the straights there's 117 million dollar bankruptcy supposedly that's Irwin's estate um and flw is gone it's toast you know and so you look at this and maybe it is toast and maybe it didn't mlf comes in and buys it which i'm still surprised to this day the court allowed them to buy it but they did they bought it off the family and they bought FLW, which became MLF, which became BPT. And it came in fresh, and then they this massive change. But that obviously had to do with Cronky Media, because what happened was Outdoor Channel changed. They were sold to Sportsman Group, Sportsman Intermedia. Intermedia sold to Cronky, so you've got three ownerships of MLF since it started in 2011. People don't realize that. And so it was quick ownerships, but they did bam, 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 you know. So you had three different ownerships of it in that period of time and MLS still morphing. I think Chase and the crowd at Bass has just really done a good job to navigate it. And we have supported and Jim Wilburn's a friend of mine. I like Chase and Chase Anderson and family. 
Um, Charles, I don't know real well. I met him. Um, but I think the family's done a good job, and I think they've done a great job of transitioning bass. Uh, Chase's grandfather's been involved in bass for decades. People don't realize that. Um, so, you know, it's, it goes back a lot of depth in the family. So I think they've done a good job navigating it. And I think we're going to see media change. But the big difference in, in MLF and in bass is the MLF is media driven. Bass is member driven. And so you have two different organizations that have two different platforms. And I think that uh, both of them could succeed. I know they're going to try to wrangle that cost next year at BPT. And I'm sure they need to wrangle that cost. I'm sure it's gotten expensive. Mm -hmm. Originally, you know, we were going to try to cover 50 guys and figured out we couldn't cover 50 guys. Then they were going to cover 25 guys, figured out we couldn't really cover 25 guys. And technology's come a long way since we started. But we wound that down to cover eight guys in the original cup series, you know, eight, eight, eight. And that's how that worked. And so we could cover eight. We could cover 12. And so that's kind of where that worked in those original cups. And uh, that's how the cups got developed and developed as a skins game. And now it's turned into its own organization, its own platform. And the biggest thing about the biggest value, I think, to MLF, is what uh, Phoenix has signed up in the sponsorship, and they got a couple of years left on their sponsorship. As of December, we're out of our sponsorship agreement. We'll not be back in sponsoring MLF. And Jim's still a friend of mine, Jim Wilburn. I love him to death, but a uh, good friend of mine. But uh, with what's happening at, at MLF, I think that um, we're going to see a real change going forward because the, the meat of that all is um, the BFL. And the BFL is is the meat of the market. It is the most aggressive, hardcore anglers in bulk we have. And uh, what FLW had that gave the most marketing value to MLF is those BFL anglers. And Bass tried to uh, go against that years and years ago with a weekend series, which didn't work. And now they sold that off to another group, and it's different. But uh, no doubt they thought they could go build it. And another industry person thought they could build it and kind of induced bass to start that platform but bfl came off a of red man and what mike whitaker and charlie evans did and i fished them in the 80s and it's really been a solid platform it's got a lot of longevity behind it now 40 years old and i think the bfl platform is where the growth is and that's really strong for mlf and then you got bass over here and you can talk about the federation you can talk about everything else they've got all of the membership which is 500,000 members and they're not all tournament guys they're casual guys and you know we just talked about a jaguar sds and actually just recently i've been kind of looking at the ages of anglers that are buying some of that product and you know they're not tournament guys they're recreational fishermen are they members of bass a lot of them are yeah but they're recreational guys they take their wife the wife is one of the most important aspects their grandchildren some of them are coaching high school kids their grandkids i talked to a gentleman two weeks ago that's coaching his grandson who's lost his father and so him and his uncle are the grandfather and his son are coaching the grandson and so there's a lot of it that are involved that are not really anglers or trying to support anglers and we're seeing a lot of high school youth coming out with grandparents uncles and just dads and of course a lot of dads uh, we're seeing even some moms that are high school coaches so i think the games change when you talk about mlf and bass and when the road i went down is this purging of this thing a little bit and that the two organizations are dynamically different 
and they can both succeed. There's this pitting against them. They can both succeed if they both have their venues. It's well said. Anything else? I don't know. You've kind of wanted, you let me ramble too much, big boy. No, I didn't. That's good stuff. <laughs> I have you on to ramble. Here's the thing. I like people who can ramble and they know what they're talking about. They come with it from an analytical and a historical context. And there's not too many guys out there. I like, I like, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was like a phone, like one of our phone conversations. <laughs> I'll send you a picture of a Mac and our M18. I know where one picture yeah, is. Yeah, I would love to, I would love I to see that. I can't find a picture of it anymore, but I know where a picture is. So I'll, I'll flick you a picture. I would be uh I would be very hey. interested in that. I'm actually filming another show today. Uh and you'll like this. I'm I got a and I'm not sure when it'll air. I kind of wanted to get one in the can. I'm interviewing uh Britt Myers Jr. Yeah, Britt Myers kid. He's jumping into the invitationals. Uh he's jumping into the invitationals this year and I followed him on uh on social media, believe it or not. And I was like, Hey man, I saw your Jeff, the, I love to interview. You've never talked to him before, but, uh, another one of the, uh, kids following in the dad's footsteps. That seems to be the thing to do these days. It's unbelievable. You talk about what, you know, obviously old school with, uh, with Roland and Scott, but you know, you got the Joneses and you got Rabatis, you got the Robinsons, the Myers, you got all these guys that grew up uh, in a bass boat, the lanes from the time they were eight years old. Three years go to, old. Go to the Dowden family, man. Bo Dowden's kids. And I mean, I'm, I've known so much, so many. I mean, I've got a picture somewhere of, uh, of there were 26 father-son teams, I think it was, at Gunnersville in the old Invitational days. Wow. And Dad and I were front and center in that picture. They put us down front. We were sitting on stools. But there were tw- I think there were 26 of us that were father-son teams. I don't remember the number. But, of course, Guido and Dion, which Guido was a good friend of mine, Dion's friend. Um, you know, guys you don't know today, Guy Eaker, Guy Eaker Jr., Scotty mm-hmm. Oliver and his son, uh, Denny and Chad. Yep. Denny yeah, that Chad. was a powerhouse for a number of years. Chad was winning stuff. They both are making classics, fishing there. I mean, they had the yeah. TVs go. Yeah, that was a big one. So father and son cruise it's not unusual it's been around for years but going up i'll tell you the one i'm waiting on and at the bass fishing hall of fame of course we were there we got a couple of tables and supported mike of course mike he invited us i'm like mike we're going to be there every year anyway (laughs) but no i'm not missing this one but anyway i I had um janet sent me a hat and uh, one of his assistants there and i called her and said you screwed up and said you didn't get a signature on it i wanted a hat and so he sent me a hat, and I didn't get a signature on it. Now I'm going to tell you about the hat. That's the night that uh, I took the hat with me and got it signed. Um, it was a hat that I wanted signed, but I wanted it signed not by Mike Iaconelli. It's a Vegas the Hammer hat, and I wanted Vegas' signature. So the <laughs> night that Ike was inducted in the Hall of Fame, I had Vegas sign his hat. I love it. So I someday when I'm gone, I'm sure I'll be gone, I hope Vegas is a, a star in a sport, and I hope I'm not gone. But, uh, but the way he's going and the way the, the ages are, he's like five years away, Rick. Yeah, yeah, the way <laughs> it is, if he just keeps his nose down. And I'll tell you, Mike and I had this conversation um, back years ago. And, I mean, Mike and I, when he made the decision to go PPT on a Sunday afternoon, and I probably shouldn't share this, uh, yeah, but I will, um, we spent – 
over two hours on a Sunday afternoon on the phone, one, one Sunday afternoon, really just beating up the scenarios. And I never advised Mike on what to do. But the one thing I did tell him then, and it really stunned him when we had the conversation, is that one day he will want to compete and he will have to look at where Vegas goes because Vegas will want to be there. And that was, of course, now, that was five, six years ago. And he had never thought about Vegas fishing someday at that level. It yeah, I think he's going to be him. there. It hadn't hit him. He wins everything in New Jersey. He's got a torpedo on the back of a little boat. And if Mike's in town, he hops in the tournament with him. And Becky sits in Becky the back does and it. documents <laughs> it. And he fights him just like Mike. And he's got it. He does his uh, he does his his videos on how he caught him and the lures. And it's fun to watch. It really is. He's got his logo. It's like a V with a. It's got some elements of Ike's uh, shark mouth on the front of it. But, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, that'll be no, the next one. He's going to be – and he's going to be good. I mean, but, I mean, will he make it? Will he go there? He might become a dentist. I can't see that having Ike Nelly. No, I think but, he'll, I think he'll, be, uh, I think he'll but, be next. But, next no, along. I mean, I think Vegas is a comer, you know. And, I mean, I've been watching him. I've been watching a lot of kids, and we've got some announcements this year that – um, with a kid we're picking up this year that is coming to us and he fits us culturally. He fits us in what we do with our belief of uh, building boats and faith and Christ. And he fits us in that area. And we've got one coming to us that I've been following for six years. And um, I'm following these young men young because I think there's a future in them. And the biggest thing is they've got good parents that work with them. And and, it, and there's, there's high school kids I've followed that have made it you know uh johnny that has fished the moment he didn't go into tournament business but i met johnny when he was a puff in little rod little oh rod yeah Arkansas. i remember that yeah he I was mean, hooked up with triton though uh earl snapped yeah. him up when he was about seven years old and put him in a triton jersey yeah well he wound up just buying one and wound up in one but he stayed in it for a long time and i think he's still running one but you know johnny schultz figured out how to make a living in sport without being a pro angler that's the most energizing thing. And I said this last Tuesday at that high school thing, that we've got more young professionals coming in the sport that are not, they're not coming in as anglers. They're coming in like, uh, you know, Brad Rutherford at Pure Fishing over there. And you've got uh, Dustin Elder down here at uh, Pradco. And I'll tell you, a group I like is the um, Merrill brothers, Tony and uh, Tyler Merrill. And one of them works for Mercury Marine. He now runs a power steering division at Mercury Marine. He's over all the power steering program, which is outboards and, and multi-engine. And then uh, Tony's working for Rather Outdoors. And we've got so many youth that are coming in this sport out of college, college and high school that aren't really coming in as anglers. And I think that's energizing, man. That's great stuff. So not even at that level. I had a young man spent time with me last week wanting to know how to become an engineer in the sport. I've got another guy that I met years ago that is an engineer at Malibu Boats. Not even here, not even our company. But it's uh, he's at Malibu, and he started as an intern. He was a young angler coming out of Alabama. He's probably pushing 40 now, and he's been in the business and works as an engineer. Did you say Tyler Merrill out of Iowa? Is that who you're yeah. talking about? Yeah, he was just getting into the uh, the college fishing. I'm pretty sure he fished against me and Chip that last year 
on the Arkansas River. He was like a freshman at Iowa. Yeah, he's now in charge of uh, power steering, the new steering program, which is an electric power steering program at Mercury Marine. No joke. Yeah, I fished against that kid back in college. I was just on the way out when he was coming in. You said the name, and I was like, surely that can't well, be the man, same he's, one. He's got a he's got a brother named Tony, too. Okay. And t- both of them fished. And like I said, Tony's a rather outdoors. Okay. So, I mean, that's just it's just really energizing to see the people come into the sport. You know, look at Michael Corbuchelet with Lawrence. Michael came into the sport through college fishing. Now he's fishing NPFL, and uh, he's he's our OEM rep for um, – for Lawrence. I mean, yeah. no, no, they don't run our product. They're good guys, do a good job. And it's just really energizing to see them in the sport. Now, Dustin runs our product. His dad has for decades. And Brad Brotherford and his dad both have boats. But um, they're not really, you know, it's not about the boat. It's about seeing them in the sport and enjoying it and, and growing it and being a part of it and bringing this thought. The other thing about those that we just discussed is they have an ability to recognize the history. And that's really important to recognize the history. So many coming in now may not recognize the history and it's important we keep that. I think it's hard to have respect if you don't understand the history. You don't have any, uh, you don't have any, any basis, any guidelines of where things have been. I mean, obviously they're saying, you know, history repeats itself. You have to learn from the past, but also, you have to have a respect for that past, and I think uh, it, b- b- both organizations, particularly Bassett. Obviously, you've had you have Ken Duke who does it. I'm going to get on my soapbox for just a minute before I let you go. Then, but uh, <laughs> you know, you go into baseball, and why is a why is a perfect game significant? Why is a no hitter significant? Because you have a history of what's happened over the past hundred and hundred and fifty years, and you have guys like Tim Kirschkin, and you have the the baseball hall of fame that can put that into perspective uh when you have guys who have cy young years and go you know on uh on pitching streaks and hitting streaks it it makes you understand it and appreciate it and then you also have the history of when things go horribly wrong and if you don't have people that understand why that went and where that went then you're going to repeat those same mistakes over and over again and you know you got a lot of 18 to 22 year olds in here and the one thing that and, and you preach on it and Hank preached on it is the importance of of the youth and getting involved. I think there should be a mandatory history lesson that comes with fishing tournaments at the high school level instead of it's about wearing the jersey and it's about getting sponsors and getting the trophies. I think you should have an understanding of what came before you, kind of the history of how all this thing works. It just gives you a better appreciation. And then I think you also will have a lot less issues on the water as far as uh, respect on the water, how you're supposed to fish how because you have a respect and an understanding for the sport. I was lucky that I got in it when I was 13 years old and that I had Harold Allen that taught me up in it. And I feel like I have that. What are we holding up there, Rick? That is a WCF placard that's laminated from the original WCS, which was the boat racing that Bassmaster did, you know? Mm-hmm. That was so the world it's got championship all the signatures fishing. of the guys that fished it at the time. But, you know, today, I think that at the elite level, and that's a piece of archive history, you know. And so at the elite level, I think it's important that um, I think they should actually put some type of a incoming history lesson on them 
And uh, back years ago, there was a, an amount of history that I'm going to talk out of school a minute um, that was lost, Matt, on the tail of the ESPN era. Mm-hmm. And, you know, bass at one time had produced, if you want a tournament at Bassmaster, they produced a plaque or trophy like yours and put your picture up in the office that week. And so there was a duplicate for every trophy. Most people don't even know that. Yeah, I have no, had no clue. There was a duplicate for every trophy, every trophy. Some of those got kept, but some of them didn't. And so there was a picture of you at the event, in your boat, winning the tur- tr- tournament, that went into Bassmaster office when you walked into the Bassmaster offices in the back, and that trophy was sitting right there every time. And every time they got a winner, they rotated it. And the history of sport was important then. Somewhere in the ESPN era, that changed a little bit. And I think that's a big thing that Chase's family has brought in, is the history of the sport's important to them. And I think it's important we keep the history of the sport focal. And that doesn't mean talk about it. That means live it, be it. So I think that it'd be really good for incoming anglers to have a lesson on the history of the sport. And I really appreciate what Terry and Batiste and that group's doing with uh, the Bass Fishing Archive. I really appreciate Terry a lot with the Bass Fishing Archive. If you haven't looked it up, Bass Fishing Archive is the place, the history of the sport. And it's the only place really working on history of sport. All right, Rick. I greatly appreciate the time uh, that you took today. Always enjoy it. Hold on, I gotta get X out of here before we uh, before we close it out. So uh, I will I will talk to you soon. I'm I'm excited to get in the uh, I'm excited to get in the new Puma. New SDS coming your way. Yeah. Very very excited. I've jumped into a couple of them. Uh, I was in John's and a couple of my other buddies and I've been like, Hey, can I like rip this sucker around? And I'll have to, I'll have to relearn a couple little things cause it drives a little differently, but I'm oh, really yeah, excited but- to haven't talked to anybody who isn't like absolutely, uh, and enthralled with it and absolutely loves it. So now most guys like it and they enjoy it. Personally, mm-hmm. my choice is still an era. I know you've always been an era guy since the moment I've known you, you've always been like, Hey, I know it might not be the boat for you, but for me, it's what, if I had, if I had a day on the water, I'm running an era. Yeah, that's where I'm at. I'm going to run a Puma SDS this year. So I've got a new Puma SDS in the pipeline, and it's going to have too many grass and too much equipment and way too much and that part of it. Yeah. Ahead is the day and age. All right, Rick. Take care. Have a good afternoon. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks for having me. All right. See you. All right, that is the one and only Rick Pierce. We're going to take our final break of the show. Uh, when we come back, I kind of spilled the beans on what the rest of the week will be like, but uh, BTL on a Monday. Man, we got two hours with Rick Pierce. Can't ask for much more than that. We'll be back right after. Great thing about the new Sensation Soft Plastic from Big Bite Baits, heavily scented, super soft, buoyant, comes in seven great new shapes. I've got a couple of them of my signature series, the Cliffhanger Worm and the Ramtail Craw. Great for a flipping jig football jig, swim jig, all that. Several other great shapes. Really excited about it. We've worked over the last year. Catches fish all over the country. And I think it's gonna catch fish for people everywhere you try it. The Spro Little John crankbait has been around for almost 15 years. And it is one of my go-to crankbaits whenever I need a fish in the boat. So you can never have enough new colors. 
That's why Spro's coming out with a handful of new colors, including Pearl Shad, which has this bleached out white look, but it's got this pearlescent, really, really pretty. We've got Copper Shad, which looks amazing in the water. It's got that purple flake on the back, really, really pops in the water. And then if you want some real pop, we've got Sparkle Shad, nothing but sparkles all over this thing. And then last but not least, we've got the matte sexy shad just a really different looking color for a crankbait so you want to give them a little different look that matte sexy shad is definitely the one to go with all these colors are available in the original little john and the md shoreline boat and rv dock rash storm damage collision repair that deep scratch or gouge from trying to access that secret creek Shoreline Boat and RV can get your prized possession back in mint condition and looking good on the water, fast. All repairs are done in-house, so they're able to get your boat or RV back to brand new, quickly. All Shoreline's work comes with a rock-solid warranty. Find out more at ShorelineBoatAndRV.com, Kansas City, Austin, and Tulsa. I'm the kind of guy that never leaves a house without a pocket knife, and Gamagatsu's come out with the EDC series of knives. EDC stands for everyday carry, so whether you're on the water or off, you can always have it with you. The best thing about it to me is that assisted open feature. With this D2 blade, you've got it right here at your fingertips, so if you can't find your scissors, you need to cut a knot, you need to cut your braid, you've always got it. Make sure you check it out. Never leave home without your Gamagatsu EDC knife. Born in Japan, using technology, innovation, and precision, Sunline produces the widest selection of fishing lines at the most technologically advanced line factory in the world. Manufactured at the strictest tolerances to produce victories at the highest levels of tournament bass fishing. From household names like Christie, Swindle, and Cruz, to young guns like Cook, Logan, New, and Welcher, they all trust Sunline to take them to the top of the leaderboard. Choose the line that will give you the strength to guarantee your confidence. Sunline. All right, we're back wrapping things up on a Monday after an hour and a half conversation, a little longer than that, with Rick Pierce covered a bunch of different topics. And uh, one of the things we all know, he has been there and he has done that. Uh, very interesting perspective. Like to talk to Rick. Uh, do you want to point out if you are uh, if you want uh, more content, head over to uh, Dave Mercer's channel, Facts of Fishing. We do this thing called the Cull every week. I know some of you guys have caught on to it. We're like two years in. We literally just do it because we enjoy it. Uh, and it's kind of like an argumentative style show. It's only like 10, 12 minutes long. Anyway, uh, this week's topic is uh, that the best lure, bass fishing lure of all time is the spoon. I firmly believe it. Dave does not firmly believe it. So we argue that for 15 minutes. So, uh, over and give that a like uh filming some shows for the holiday weekend coming up tomorrow uh we're going to stay in depth with guys we got scott palmer from the bass tank who's going to come in and talk about the bass tank academy also going to talk about uh what to do with your units uh during the winter time as far as saving waypoints uh cleaning it out making sure you don't lose anything you're transferring stuff from boat to boat removing electronics from boats putting it on new boats all sorts of little stuff uh, that makes a big difference kind of in that November through February time frame when most of the guys are either transitioning or getting ready for a new year. And then he's also going to talk about the Bass Tank Academy. I mentioned I'm shooting a show uh, in a couple minutes here with uh, Britt Myers Jr. And then on Wednesday, we have the winners of the high school and college chaos on. And then we will also catch up with the Cajun baby.
Cliff Crochet. It's been a while since we've had the Cajun baby on back on the BPT for another year. All right, that is all we got for a Monday. Big thanks to Rick Pierce. Big thanks to all the listeners. Good viewership. Uh, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. It means a lot. You guys did great. Uh, a lot more, uh, a lot more feedback and greatly appreciated. All right, tomorrow, Scott Palmer in studio. We'll talk to everybody then. Later. <laughs>